Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we want to welcome you to this week's uh, show. First of all, to talk a little bit about what will be coming up later in the show. All of the focus in the media has been on the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and we're going to look at the politics of a Supreme Court justice nomination. So we've seen this uh, through a number of cycles uh, in the past uh, four years. And if we go back even into the Obama administration and we look at uh, the uh, replacement of five Supreme Court justices, but we're really going to look at what are the different dynamics that are happening to help people understand a little more the, the challenges and significance of this going forward as we move toward the election. But I want to first do a couple of things, and one is the regular thing of directing you to our Facebook page that's On Politics with Eric Morrow, where we post related articles to the interviews and the uh, stories and information that we pass along on the show. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. Uh, This is a show uh, moves to SoundCloud after it airs on Sundays at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. And we are also now available as a podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast, but through Amazon. So Amazon has a podcast uh, uh, archive there, repository where you can go online. And if you uh, get different things from Amazon, you can also look us up there uh, and listen at your convenience. So I want to welcome you again to the show today. This first part of the show is focused on the 2020 U.S. Census. So we are uh, in the midst of this process uh, this year of of something that happens every decade where the census is done. And of course, each round of the census presents new challenges, uh, new uh, approaches, uh, new just looking at overall the kinds of demographics and the kinds of information uh, that is collected and and then how that will inform uh, government from the federal all the way to the local level uh, going forward. And certainly, as we'll be talking about in the weeks ahead, as we look at the outcomes of the election and look to Uh, the meeting of the Texas legislature next year uh, would be redistricting process, which becomes very uh, interesting, especially in a state like ours, as we've seen through past processes. But this will be something that we'll give a a more attention to. But joining us on the show today to talk about the census is someone who's actually working in the field, who is coordinating uh, some of the work of the census and both in terms of research and looking at what uh, what's what's happening, what dynamics and challenges are there, uh, but also in, in terms of direct uh, census work. And that's Dr. Jennifer Edwards, who is a professor of communication studies here at Tarleton State University and also the executive director of the Rural Communication Institute here at Tarleton. She has over 15 years of social media management and training and experience as a researcher and as a business owner. Uh, Through the Rural Communication Institute, she strives to help organizations communicate more effectively with individuals in rural areas. The Institute also connects rural organizations to federal, state, and local opportunities. And most recently in her work right now is on the 2020 census in underserved rural communities in Texas. Welcome, Dr. Edwards. Good morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you here and have someone that has that direct experience and interaction with what's going on with the census right now. Tell us a little more about what you're doing in underserved rural areas and and some of the challenges that are involved in that in collecting census data. Sure. So um, we received a grant last fall, um, in fall 2019, to, um, from the Hogg Foundation to reach out to rural communities. And one thing that we wanted to do that was a little bit different is to focus on areas that are historically underserved by um, university support. Um, and those areas primarily were in the Central Texas and East Texas area. So our grant was, was, um, was approved um, for Shelby County, Russ County, and also Panola County, which are in Congressional District um, 1 for the state of Texas. And it has been an amazing um, experience. So throughout the spring and summer and now the fall, um, we've been 
going everywhere from gas stations to grocery stores. Um, we've been in front of tractor supplies. Um, one thing that we've truly focused on is to figure out what people's um, pain points are. Um, it's important to realize um, if you reach those pain points and you help address those pain points, then they're more likely to listen. A person is not likely to listen if they're hungry or if they have trouble feeding their children. So um, we have partnered with food banks. I actually just finished a two-hour food bank distribution, and we handed out over 150 shirts in the Shelby County area. But one thing that has been um, a huge barrier has been COVID-19. Um, we've had to, we, appear, we basically adhere to the standards from the state of Texas. And I've never been so focused on, um, on what the governor says, um, except during this time frame. And it's been pivotal because we want to remain safe and we want the people that we provide outreach to, to remain safe as well. But this was one of the um, hotspots for the COVID-19 um, epidemic or pandemic in Texas because um, these areas have most of the um, chicken and poultry processing plants in the East Texas region and in the state of Texas. So these were the first regions to be hit in, um, in March and April. So in relation to the, the pandemic and the, and the challenges that it presented, last week we did a segment on the show that looked at how the state was, was handling that, uh, especially the governor looking at executive orders and kind of looking over a timeline. And, and, and looking back at your work and, and what you've been doing as a result of the grant and collecting census data, uh, have, have you seen those dynamics change? Have people uh, adjusted their response to the pandemic or, or is it is it varied in that you have some, as we see throughout the state, that uh, just are, are going about doing whatever they're going to do without maybe some of the safety precautions, and then then others that are trying to be more more cautious. Uh, to me, it would seem that that would affect how uh, willing people are to engage with the work that you're doing. Well, I think it's all focused. I mean, especially in as Texans, we we like the the freedom of of expression. <laughs> I think that's the Texas way. But um, I really think um, if they see that you are using those precautions, like I usually use a plethora of hand sanitizer, and um, I have our team use um, the personal protective equipment whenever we're interacting with people. If they see that you're being safe, they also remain six feet away, or they um, feel more comfortable with you. So even even if we're in front of gas stations, everyone does not wear a mask. However, if they see that you're doing it, they respect that and they're more likely to listen to you. Um, at least that's what we've encountered so far. Um, but people have been very, um, very open. Um, for instance, even with the food drive, um, we're not allowed to place food in people's um, cars, like in the back seat. We can only place food in the trunk or, you know, the back of someone's van. And so um, even working with our partner organizations like the U.S. Census Bureau, as well as the East Texas Food Bank and the local Head Start, um, which is here in Center, Texas, it's been very important to exercise those precautions because if they see that you're safe, they're more likely to listen. So has your, has your research in this the, or the research part of it, uh, are you looking at uh, the, the ongoing challenges of census work and and say approach or methods in rural areas, or is the pandemic uh, in, in that environment factoring into that as well? What, what are you trying to do in addition to uh, uh, promote the census and to get the data that, that needs to be collected? Uh, what beyond that is, is the hope to learn from this or, or, or gain from it for the future? Sure. One large piece that I've heard time and time again from the actual census workers and also from people in the community, um, especially what's been interesting on local Facebook forums. I've joined a lot of um, community and county Facebook forums, um, and they have talked about the fact that they've never received a blue census form. Many people I talk to outside of the regular city limits um, who just live in the greater uh, county never received a census form. And that is true in um, most of our rural counties in Texas because apparently, um, basically the, the U.S. Census has different addresses on file and most of these individuals receive their, their mail from the post office. So they actually have to, they have to have a post office box. They do not have a, have a box in front of their home. So they never received the census. And that's happened um, probably we'll just say that 25% of people that I reach out to about the census, they've never received a form because the addresses are incorrect. And 
um, even from a census standpoint, but more importantly, a um, emergency management standpoint for the state of Texas, if we look at our aging population, if they call 911, they won't be able to find them potentially because the Census Bureau potentially uses the same addresses as the 911 district. So um, that those are basically two research areas that I'm focused on right now um, regarding number one, the census and getting out the count for the census workers. We're already focused on 2030, but also from a rural emergency management piece, um, it, it's important to make sure that those addresses are correct for our rural residents. So the emphasis here is really on uh, getting as accurate data as possible. And, and so I, I see what, what you're doing in terms of the, the evaluation of what's happening and being able to, to address that, report that back and, and make changes. I, I think it's great for our listeners to just remind people uh, how, why it is so critical that we have as accurate as, of information as possible. Uh, could you go into that in a little more detail? Sure. So it's important to have accurate information, especially for the census, because census data guides everything that we do in our community. Um, even from a personal standpoint, anytime I write grants and I write a plethora of grants for the Texas communities in rural areas, but basically I use census data for everything. I just finished talking to um, our uh, Head Start area um, and, and also the, the East Texas Council of Governments, and they use census data. Um, our 911 district use census data to guide everything. And so if they do not have accurate data, then they cannot advocate on behalf of the community because basically they do not know the, the demographic makeup of that community. Um, and one thing I will say that's been um, a barrier as well, um, and it's, it's interesting, I don't um, have the opportunity to speak Spanish um, most days. <laughs> However, with the census, um, it has really, really enabled me to tap back into uh, my Spanish speaking skills and to reach a segment of the population um, who historically just interacts um, in English with a um, basically with English or they are forced to communicate in English. And so most of my conversations with individuals who speak um, Spanish um, are, are met with surprise, especially coming from an African-American um, woman um, to have those conversations with them. But through those conversations, we've been able to break through that barrier and they have been able to do their census. So um, many individuals I've, I've connected with who only speak Spanish have not completed their census. And we were able to have conversations about the importance of doing so for the community. And I'm mentioning that because with our rural areas, we have a, a lot of diversity in our um, Latino um, population. So it's important that everyone counts in our rural areas in order to get more resources. Do, do you see that in, that engaging with that level of diversity, especially we see in Texas with the growing uh, Hispanic population, but there are other groups as well. You go into our metropolitan areas and they're some of the most diverse in the country. Uh, do, you, do you see that we're, we're lagging behind in, a, in a, adapting the census process to addressing uh, that that diversity and being able to engage so that we do get accurate data. I mean, I know on, on my part, I mean, we certainly see politics gets wrapped up in all of this, but in the end, the census is the census. It's, it's, it's trying to get an accurate picture of the population of the country and where are those demographic shifts and changes and so on. And so I just, I just kind of wonder in terms of, of the importance of the work you're doing in helping to maybe catch up a little bit, at least that's from my perspective. I don't know if you see that as well in, in terms of the, the, uh, the, the process itself now and what it needs to be to engage with that high level of diversity. Well, it's, I also think it's important to have to hire local census workers. Um, they've, the Census Bureau has had some difficulty hiring and keeping census workers um, because the schedules vary, but I think it's important to to have those local census workers. And I'm saying that because, um, like for instance, I'm in Central Texas right now. Um, it's in Shelby County, but Shelby County has, um, after doing my research, I was surprised at the level of diversity. Um, you mentioned in metropolitan areas that they have individuals, um, you know, of various international who represent various countries. However, in 
even center Texas, they have a growing refugee population. They have a growing population of individuals who work at the um, poultry processing plants that you would never think um, would live in a rural area, but that diversity is important because whenever we're communicating with individuals, we want to make sure that they are receiving materials in their language for which they have the most comfort. So it's just the hiring of local census workers to know the diversity of that community and how to reach those um, very diverse populations. We've seen that dynamic as well with the elections, uh, and, and it varies. I mean, in rural areas, there doesn't seem to be as much of a as much of a challenge in hiring, uh, or not hiring, but uh, getting election poll workers uh, for both early voting and and the election day, day of the election. But and uh, we've seen this in metropolitan areas where they've struggled to uh, fill those ranks of people who. Uh, normally, senior adults are, are the are by far the majority, but with the current pandemic, I, I would assume that was having some impact on uh, securing census workers uh, during this time period. Definitely so. And, um, you know, just it's like a realistic preview of what you would um, do as a census worker, I think is very important um, for the next hiring or the next inspiration of the census is in 2030 because many census workers just think it's, you know, basically knocking on doors in, in the cities. But most of the census workers that I've been very fortunate to work with, they're driving 70 um, miles per day. They're putting 70 miles a day on their vehicles within a 10-mile radius of, of a geographic area because the maps that they're getting are taking them around um, different areas. And some of the maps in rural areas, especially with internet coverage, aren't necessarily accurate. So I think it's very important to, for people to know realistically what they're getting into and how that can ultimately help our country. Well, before we move on to look ahead at, at some of the things that, that may come out of this and influence policy and, and, and uh, approach to the census, uh, what, what does it actually take for someone to be a uh, a census worker. Uh, I think that's something to help people think about and, and maybe they're they're not able to get involved in, in, at this point in time. Uh, but if we're looking ahead in the future, uh, kind of thinking of that and, and looking at it, I, I saw the need for election workers. And so I jumped on board. I'm going to go do the training to work on election day to, to help just emphasize how important that is. And I think this is something that people should consider in the future as well because of the significance of it. So tell us just just a little bit about what it, what a, a person goes through to prepare to be a census worker. Sure. So um, basically, they take a they have to study for and take an examination. I've actually helped a few people um, prepare for that piece. Um, I have not taken that examination, but there are various materials on how um, you know on preparation materials on how to prepare. Um, also, after you take the exam, you have to go through an interview process. Most likely, it's going to be at a regional level. Uh, then after that interview process, you, are, um, you persist through the training. Um, some of the, the driving that the person has to do, they are accompanied by their supervisor to make sure that they're on the right track, especially when they're um, asking questions and interacting with people. And also, um, one thing that I've been very, very excited to see um, for the census on a local and also a national level is to basically <laughs> know that all the census workers, they have to wear um, masks. They have to, they cannot enter a person's home and, um, you know, to adhere to those guidelines as well. And that's one thing that I've been very fortunate to work with our regional census office and we've sponsored roadside booths, so our highway side booths. Um, in our tri-county area, and that's one thing that they have not wavered on. Um, no matter if, you know, corona or COVID-19 is decreasing in an area, they always wear masks. We always wear masks in order to remain safe. So that's also part of the rigorous training that they receive. Very good. Well, you've mentioned a number of, of things that, in looking ahead, that uh, uh, should influence this process going forward, like you said about identifying people who live there locally to be able to do the work, certainly people who know the area and know the people and can connect with them. Do you see any other areas that uh, could be impacted by the, the, 
the research and the work that you're doing or, or maybe other areas that are happening as well and what we're learning uh, about the census, which again, I would assume every 10 years, it's a learning process. You gain additional information and perspective that hopefully factors into how this will be done 10 years from now. What Do you see any other areas that are critical uh, that should be front and center for those that are establishing policy uh, for the census going forward? Definitely, I would, uh number one, realize that individuals in rural areas may use a cell phone for um, social purposes, like with social media. However, they are not fully versed on how to use the, uh, the cell phone for completing tasks. So for instance, with the census, I've had to train many individuals, especially even individuals in their 30s and 40s, and, um, and also in our elderly population um, and our younger population, how to do that. So um, it's, the training piece is very important for our community. <laughs> and also um, just to know that with the rural areas and especially with um, something as important as the census to know that um, many individuals across Texas are very reluctant to even come out of their homes right now. So um, I know that we extended the date until October the 31st and then um, minimized that date until the 30, 30th of September. However, just to realize the importance of, of pushing that back um, and the implications of pushing that back, um, it, from a communication standpoint, I would say that, you know, it's important to realize that the latter date was on many materials. So many people think that we still have until October the 30th. Um, and then last but not least, from a state standpoint, and this is just my personal opinion, but um, I look across the border at Louisiana, I look across the border at Oklahoma, and they allocated funding for, um, on a state level, for uh, promoting the census. And I just read uh, yesterday morning that um, the state of Texas just allocated funding on the 16th of September for the census, and we haven't allocated that funding at all in the census cycle. So they allocated funding for 15 days. Wow. Yes, yeah, so that, that is a little late uh, to uh, be able to yes, assist sir. in the process. And and well, and I think some of this may be wrapped up just kind of in, in, in uh, closing here. Uh, that is something we give a lot of attention to or have in different uh, issues in Texas is political culture in the state. And you mentioned a little bit about that uh, at a couple of points in, in the interview here. But one, the you know, kind of reluctance of people to engage uh, but also, you know, we, it's this, this focus sometimes on, on government being as, as least intrusive as possible. And in some areas that, hey, that, that works great. And in other areas, uh, maybe not so much. And so I, I think you're probably seeing a mixture of those things that, that make your work a little bit more challenging, I would assume. Definitely so, especially, you know, we, every single week, we have three to four conference calls focus on the census. And so we look at our numbers and where Texas is as a whole when compared to our, uh, our national counterparts and um, you know, the other states in the United States. And it's just to know that we're that far behind, um, especially when we're looking at states like Minnesota, which allocated a plethora of money toward promoting the census to, you know, even Louisiana. It's to know that we potentially are going to receive less federal funding for our roads, for our educational institutions, for um, our, our homeless and, and hungry population, it puts me, uh, it does not put me at ease. Yes, yeah, and, and especially because that federal funding is such a large portion of the state budget in Texas and makes, a, makes the difference in being able to fund some of those uh, uh, specific programs. If it wasn't for federal dollars, we just would not have them. And so that that is critical that uh, this information is not only accurate, but uh, 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 it is uh, uh, the, the effort there in order to ensure that for the benefit of all Texans, I mean, all people across the state, that, that whether they're residents or, or citizens, whoever they may be, uh, the, this, this really counts and is really important. Well, I I want to thank you for joining us today. This gives us some insight into what's happening on the ground and what are some of the challenges.
And I know our listeners will appreciate that and getting a glimpse in at a, a process that we do on a, on a regular basis every decade, but uh, that still needs work, that, that we have some challenges there that, that we need to address and that, that uh, each of us can have a role, not only I think in completing uh, the census and getting that information uh, that's needed, but also uh, if, if, if possible to participate and help uh, in the effort uh, to make sure that uh, this work is done and, and completed in the most accurate uh, way possible. So Dr. Edwards, again, thank you for joining us today and, and we wish you well in your work and we'll look for how that impacts uh, uh, the approach to the census in, in decades to come. I'm excited. We're already prepping for 2030. <laughs> All right. Very good. Never too late to prepare. It's a, it's a massive undertaking. It's, it's very it evident. Is a massive so. undertaking. Yes. yes. Well, sir. again, thank you so much uh, for our listeners. We will take a short break and we will come back and we will look at the politics of a Supreme court nomination. We'll be right back. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsay Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. The 2020 election is approaching. Make sure you meet the requirements to vote. To vote, you must be a U.S. citizen, 18 years or older, on or before Election Day, a resident in the registered county, and be registered to vote. Cast your vote at your local polling center or by mail. To vote by mail, you must be 65 years or older, disabled, or be out of the county during the voting period. Your vote matters whether you cast it or not. For more information, visit VoteTexas.gov. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we want to thank again Dr. Jennifer Edwards, Professor of Communication Studies at Tarleton State, for joining us and discussing the U.S. Census and the work that she's doing, as well as the research to make the census process better, make it work better, and to see some of the challenges, especially in rural areas of not just Texas, but throughout the United States in collecting census data. So we thank her for that, and then we'll look forward to getting back with her as the census process wraps up. Uh, we just heard in the news here recently with the court challenge that uh, the executive and the president could not uh, limit the census time and that they had tried to reduce that time by a month. So that's now uh, going to give a little bit more time to try to complete this process and have as accurate data as possible. So I also want to, as we turn to the second half of the show, as I mentioned last week, we're right in the period of our one-year anniversary of On Politics. So that's a, a milestone, I would say, being someone who came into radio doing this, uh, having not had a vast experience in radio before, that doing a weekly show is uh, challenging and rewarding. Uh, it's been rewarding because of all of the different elements and stories and just issues that we've brought to you over the course of the year, challenging because we have to be prepared. We have to structure this every week in order to have the interviews and to engage with these stories. But this is very much a, a service, uh, not just of Tarleton State through public radio, but through the, the work that we're doing as educators and just providing the types of information that people need to make informed decisions, to be engaged in the world around them, to understand what is happening in politics and governance and policy. And so we want to continue to do that through this format uh, for another year and, and hopefully for years to come, because uh, there are always new issues, new events, as we've seen over this past week, uh, things that just happen that uh, it's just regular every week. Uh, I think I'm amazed, I'm amazed myself, even though I've been teaching in this field and, and working with classes and students and so on, that uh, each week there are new issues, new events, new aspects of all of these issues that, that we need to address. And we try to do our part with the, the show and with the time that we have each week to bring you critical information and direct you to resources as well as ideas and things to think about as you engage uh, with uh, the world of government policy and politics. So speaking of that, speaking of that kind of change, we were all amazed in this past week when we saw a new twist to this election. 
and that was the uh, vacancy now that we have on the Supreme Court. So first, certainly the vacancy itself with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing, having served as long as she had on the Supreme Court, and having been such a, uh, a figure in, in the judicial system uh, for so many years. Uh, so that's one part of this that, as we see, people have been expressing their uh, their sense of loss, uh, the what this means for our nation in terms of recognizing someone who gave uh, their time, their life, their energy, their intellect uh, to uh, the judicial system and serving in this capacity, which is uh, very much an honor on the highest court in the land. But that has now turned as with her passing and with uh, the services and so forth coming to a close uh, to the process for selecting a new Supreme Court justice. And here we are, uh, very close to the election, now under 40 days. Uh, we are uh, seeing the, the wrangling that is happening among politicians on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, and trying to address this. And we saw some of that come to the forefront within, within 24 hours after her death. There were already discussions in the media among politicians about how would this proceed, especially looking back to what happened prior to the 2016 election, uh, when uh, more than uh, nine months out, you had a vacancy on the court and you had President Barack Obama putting forward a nominee, but because the Senate was controlled by Republicans, uh, they basically said, no, uh, we're not going to consider that. It's a presidential election year. And of course, all the politics around that. And of course, these judicial selections and the nomination process are just filled with politics. And part of understanding this and engaging with it is one, recognizing that the politics are there. They're going to be there. I mean, this is politics. This is government. This is uh, this has motivations and, and, and policy focus that that are all about politics. Uh, but on the other side of it, we need to look at, and I think this is a good example uh, and a good uh, example here of this process and what's happening now to distinguish between what it what are good politics and what are bad politics. And you might be sitting there thinking as you're hearing that, well, uh, all politics are bad. Uh, and that very much has dominated in Texas political culture in terms of the view of government, that to get into politics is to kind of have to, 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 to be somewhat tainted uh, because it is, is bad. But politics are a part of our existence. They're a part of our society and in, in many and multiple ways, and especially in government and when we're talking about policy. And so we have to look at this in that way. We have to look at what is really good about our system in terms of how situations like this are navigated in a political way, which is what's going to happen, but in a way that's within the boundaries of our system and using the elements of our system of governance to be able to achieve the outcomes that are desired. And that's said of both sides, because remember, in politics and in governance, we have a system in which not everyone's going to get the outcome they want. It's a system that's built around diversity. It's a system that's that's recognizes that people are going to have different ideologies. They're going to have different views of the role of government, and they're going to bring those into a political process in order to achieve outcomes. And you achieve outcomes in that system by getting votes. You achieve those outcomes by getting elected by getting into the, the bodies, the decision-making bodies that then affect policy and policy change. And so here we are seeing that. Here, the Supreme Court has a tremendous impact on policy, on law, uh, on uh, uh, the direction in specific areas that we go as a country. And so this becomes very, very political. But again, the difference here, and I think this is where we need to look at this, is between what are good politics and what are, are, are bad politics. So I wanna refer you, and I'll post this on Facebook so that you can connect with it as well, to a column that was written recently by Dr. Malcolm Cross, who is a professor of political science here at Tarleton State. We've had him on the show before. And he reflected on this in, in a way, and I'm going to take it a little step further, but he was reflecting on this and, and, and in a way gave me the idea that this is a 
an appropriate time to look at this. And talking about the, the nomination process here. And, and one of the things that he points out is that it's very much right now as we see it, and well, let, let's go back to 2016. It was very much in the right of the Senate being controlled by Republicans to block uh, the nomination uh, that President Obama uh, put forward. Uh, it's the same when we go back to, uh, or come back, bring this forward, let me say, to now. It, it's the role of the president. That's a constitutional role that he has in making a nomination. And it is the role then of the Senate. And it's every much within their right to proceed with that nomination. Okay, so this is something that we, we have to accept and we have to, uh, to, to look at in terms of process here. Uh, if the Democrats were in power, it would be the same thing. And this is why we see this back and forth in politics, depending on who is control, in control. And this is what we have to really understand about this is that uh, it is about that power. It is about those votes. And the process does permit the party that is in power to be able to make these decisions and to uh, move things in the direction that they want. So when we look at this uh, going on now, what do we distinguish here between what, what are good politics and what are bad politics? So what Dr. Cross points out is that to base the decision on how to vote on a nomination is by no means dishonest or unconstitutional. Okay, just what we, we said. Uh, and as he says here in the article, indeed, senators concerned with the impact of a new justice on Supreme Court decisions are voting with well-justified reason, given the profound impact of the Supreme Court on American history. So to be concerned, as he states, with the policy implications of Supreme Court nominees makes perfect sense, right? So that, that's, that's the, the primary concern. You have two major competing parties. They each have different views of, of policy and the role of government and a Supreme Court nomination and decision that has tremendous impact on policy, uh, and it will for years to come. What he points out here is that the process becomes very corrupt when senators try to disguise their public policy motives for voting for or against Supreme Court nominees and assert other reasons for their actions. Okay, and this, this I think, is what we've seen on both sides, is that 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 for the Republicans in 2016, it was putting forward and saying as a rule, uh, well, we shouldn't be appointing justices to the Supreme Court during a presidential election year. That what really the reason they blocked uh, Barack Obama's nomination uh, of Merrick Garland for, to the Supreme Court? No, the reason was, and this is how they were a little bit dishonest, is that they didn't want him on the Supreme Court because he would not reflect the kinds of decisions in terms of policy uh, that Republicans, leading Republicans would want or the Republicans would want. The same thing with this process that we saw recently with Brett Kavanaugh, where uh, party, politi party politics aside on this, okay, let's, let's set that aside to, to show what was the process focused on. It was focused much more on a character assassination of a nominee to the Supreme Court. Uh, it, it got so far into the weeds with that that it got away from what that nomination process is really supposed to be. And so the bad politics came out in putting the focus on the wrong things and the wrong reasons to oppose a nomination, rather than the opposition to the nomination being focused on the fact that Brett Kavanaugh as being nominated by Trump and being uh, uh, the process being led through the Senate by Republicans would not achieve the policy outcomes that they want. Okay, so that's the challenge that we see here again. Uh, we see this contrast here because now you have Democrats on one side that are bringing up uh, what happened in 2016. Well, you said no nomination in a presidential election year. What you, you're seeing Republicans come out and then looking back and saying, well, there's been plenty of nominations in presidential election years, especially when the Senate and the White House were controlled by the same party. Okay, so the, the focus is on that rather than on what the whole nomination has to do with and who's in power in Congress and the White House, and that is to get the outcomes that they want in terms of the Supreme Court and its focus on policy, its impact on policy. So 
just to draw from this and to kind of sum up the differences here between what we're talking about in good politics and bad politics, good politics, because they're going to be there, politics are going to be a part of this process. There's clarity, uh, the clarity of, of motivation, uh, the clarity of intent. And that is that, that there are policy outcomes that that party wants to achieve. And because they are in power and because they control the process, uh, they are going to move forward and, and, and get the things that they want. And they have the constitutional right to be able to do that because of the way the process is set up. And that's the other part of it. They're following the process. Okay, they're focused on a process that's laid out constitutionally, and they're moving forward with that process. Uh, the other side of it, it's bad politics when the focus is on changing the rules in order to, to um, uh, the, and the focus becomes only that, just, you know, changing the rules. Uh, we're we're going to do it uh, our way, or, or we're, we're making an arbitrary rule like Republicans did in 2016 of saying, well, we don't have nominations during presidential election years. Or as we saw with the Democrats, with Brett Kavanaugh, the focus becomes character assassination. It becomes focused on uh, any way possible to bring disrepute to this nominee rather than being very clear about their motivations of saying, we don't want this person nominated because they do not reflect uh, the kinds of policy outcomes that we want to achieve. So what we'll see, I think, over the weeks ahead, and we'll come back to this nomination process as it moves forward, but we are going to see both good and bad politics. And I think you should be looking for that. Look, look at intent. What is the intent here? What is the, the focus here? Do Republicans move forward with this nomination saying, oh, we're doing it not just because we can and because we want to achieve certain policy outcomes, which would be good politics. We, we're doing it because, oh, well, if you know Joe Biden gets elected president or uh, we've got to take do this before the election happens because there are different factors that may influence this process uh, post-election. Um, and on the same, uh, the other side as well, Democrats, how do they then engage with candidates that are brought forward uh, and are nominated to the Supreme Court? Uh, again, the, the, there are differences in views and opinions, and those are going to be demonstrated in nominees for the Supreme Court. Are they open in addressing those differences of opinion in terms of their uh, views about the role of government and about various policy issues, rather than having all of their focus in some way going after a character assassination or trying to discredit uh, someone who's been nominated. So look for those. Look, let's 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 look for that in the in the weeks ahead because it can teach us a lot about politics and what what is something that works within our system and affirms the system in the way we govern ourselves and things which are really associated more with uh, making politics either corrupt or dishonest uh, and, and, and really not revealing the true motivations behind uh, the outcomes that are wanted by those that are in power. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with our last segment of the show. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. For more from Tarleton Radio, check out our podcast on Tarleton Radio Network. Listen in for the latest from Cruising the Planet, Making Space, a Diversity Dialogue, Tea for Texas with T. Lindsay Baker, and On Politics with Dr. Eric Morrow. Subscribe to our new feed, Tarleton Radio Special Report, for news and interviews from Tarleton, Stephenville, and the Cross Timbers. You can find these shows wherever you get your podcast, or all in one place by searching Tarleton Radio Network. For more information, visit tarletonradionetwork.com. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm glad you're joining us today, and we look forward to having you with us each week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM also streaming on tarletonradio.com and after the show available on SoundCloud or wherever you download your podcast. For this last segment of the show, I wanted to move to a topic that's here in Texas based on a, an interview I gave recently for a newspaper article that was focused on Texas Congressional District 
25. Now this district is uh, right here in Stephenville and accompanies part of this, but also goes up toward Fort Worth uh, and all the way down to Austin. It's one of those interesting districts that encompasses both rural and urban and rapidly growing urban Texas. And so the interview was really focused on a couple of things. One, how this district is changing. So let's look at that for a moment when we're talking about the election. Right now, the seat is held and has been by Roger Williams, who up until 2018 uh, won by wide margins. So in 2016, uh, the margin of victory over the Democratic challenger for the seat in Congress uh, was over 18 point spread. Uh, he won by 58.4 to 37.7 percent of the vote. However, two years later, 2018, Roger Williams won by less than half that spread, 53.5 to 44.8. And so this past year, uh, in this past summer, I should say, Democrats put this district on its list to see, to look at it in this election, the 2020 election, as one that might be possible for a Democratic win. And if we were to half that margin again, uh, yes, it would be a, a, a almost close to a tie. And so if we're looking at what impacts the change in this district and in terms of voter turnout, uh, this one is probably very close. And it's one that could go either direction for Roger Williams or for the Democratic challenger, Julie Oliver, uh, who also ran in 2018 and is running again here in 2020. So we have some districts around it, though, uh, that are not quite as competitive. But this is one, I think, of 10 districts in Texas that Democrats have in their sights as, as possibly winning uh, because that, that margin of victory has been declining significantly. So there were a couple of other aspects of this, and one was looking at this district as a microcosm of the partisan divide that we see in the nation in a couple of ways. Uh, one of the main ways would be the urban to rural vote, because as this district encompasses a huge rural area here in central Texas, I mean, it stretches from Johnson County and Cleburne uh, all the way down to north of Austin, Marble Falls and Burnett as rural areas. And then in the, the, the metropolitan areas of it is that it just moves in partially to Tarrant County, just, just the city limits of Burleson all the way down to West Austin. So in, in the suburbs on the west side of Austin and really even part of it cuts across uh, Northern Austin. It's, it's one of those districts that you have to be careful where you live. I mean, in the sense that uh, you, you may not know that you're in this district uh, or what district you're in because it does take so many zigs and zags as it goes down through central Texas. But those metropolitan areas, Southwest uh, Tarrant County into Johnson County, and west to northwest Austin, those are some of the fastest growing metropolitan areas in the country. And so the demographic change in these areas is considerable. When you look at Texas adding a thousand new residents a day, half by birth, half by people moving into the state, you look at these areas because they have been growing uh, significantly. I mean, at one point in, in southwest Fort Worth, uh, houses were being built at the pace of 300 single family units a year. And so we see that that gap kind of closing in from Fort Worth when you go south toward Burleson, uh, when you go down the Chisholm Trail Parkway, which is where our, our new Tarleton campus is in Fort Worth, you just see tremendous uh, building activity, commercial, uh, residential that's happening. Uh, of course, that's a little north of this district, but it's having an impact further south. And this election will be very interesting uh, to see what is actually happening and what um, what uh, dynamics are going on and how those what are bec rapidly becoming uh, urban, strong urban or suburban areas that are connected to larger uh, urban areas, uh, how that will impact uh, the vote in this district. Uh, the other thing, too, to look at, and this was the the, the case of the, the reporter that I was speaking with, and then kind of looking at this as a microcosm of, of uh, geography and the political landscape across the country, uh, is that you see some differences as well. Uh, this district may not reflect uh, in terms of its economic base because of agriculture, but also the, the types of industries or commercial that you would see in Austin and Southwest of Fort Worth, 
where in some parts of the country where you would have this kind of split might be more industrial. So part of looking at a district like this and seeing how it compares to the rest of the country is looking at that economic base. But another area, and this is where it is a little bit significant, is that this district is not quite as diverse as the nation as a whole. Uh, you have a, a, a almost 68% are white non-Hispanic in this district, where, where in the nation as a whole, uh, that's around 60%. So that, that's a, a sizable difference uh, there in the makeup of this uh, population. It's also uh, the, the population growth in the suburban areas, as I mentioned, is some of the fastest in the country and where in some areas you might not be seeing uh, that kind of demographic uh, growth. Uh, and then the other thing, and this is what is unique to Texas in, in, in some ways, other states do this as well, uh, will be the election process itself. Uh, now, we saw within the last week or so that uh, the chairman of the uh, Republican Party of Texas, uh, uh, the Agricultural Commissioner, and a few others have sued the governor over extending early voting. So that early voting is starting uh, in, uh, in mid-October uh, and going through up to the election. And one of the concerns I have here is that with all of these rural areas, and especially with our conversations with the Erath County Clerk and, and other data that I've looked at, is that early voting might be more beneficial to Roger Williams than it will be to his challenger. Now you, you'd say early voting or extended voting might be more beneficial to a democratic challenger in a district like this, because you're looking at the urban centers. But, but what we're seeing is that, that early voting in the pandemic, giving more time for people to go and vote at times, there's less likely to be more people there. It's more accessible. It's more convenient. Uh, that may be of benefit uh, to, to Roger Williams in throughout this district because turnout in those rural areas is going to be very, very important in countering turnout in the suburban areas, uh, suburban and urban areas. And this challenge of early voting, I, I'm interested to see because it could have very much a benefit if, if, if the challenge... I think we're kind of late in the game here. I don't know that the courts are going to come in uh, over against the governor and say, hey, we're going to cancel that. It'll be interesting to see the turnout in this race, especially since it's predicted to be a very close one, uh, that uh, how turnout will have an impact. So it's an interesting district to watch. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, as we get closer to the election, especially those of you that are in our listening area that are in this district, is pay attention to this race and kind of look at the, the, the factors that are contributing uh, to uh, the outcome uh, of the race. I want to thank you for joining us uh, this week on politics. Uh, we look forward to bringing you interesting stories and engaging issues every week. So look to Facebook for related articles and additional reads that will help you with the issues that we cover. And we'll look forward to being back with you next week. Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.